Father, we thank you and we praise you for your faithful love. God, we thank you that your love for us is not contingent on our performance for you, Lord, because we fail. Lord, we fall into sin. We turn our hearts from you. We turn our eyes away from you, Lord. We put our hope and our trust in lesser things, and yet you have promised that you will be faithful to us. You have promised us that you will never leave us, that you will never forsake us, Lord. You promise us that we are never alone. You promise us that you give us new hearts and new minds and new desires through faith in your son, Jesus Christ. So Lord, we come to you once again this morning on the heels of a week, at the end of a week, where it looks like things once again are out of control. So Lord, fix our hearts and minds and our eyes once again on the truth that you have not moved one inch off of your throne. That you remain sovereign. You remain in control, that nothing that's happening in our world is outside of your promises or your plans. So Father, this morning, will you recenter our hearts and minds on your word? Fix our eyes on your son, Jesus Christ. Give us renewed hope and renewed strength and renewed desire for him today. And we ask all of these things in his name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You can go ahead uh, and have a seat here for just a moment. And uh, welcome. We're glad to have you here this morning. I'm going to invite you to go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles. Uh, Ezra chapters 1 and 2, Old Testament book of Ezra chapters 1 and 2. Uh, this is a little bit of a newer rhythm for our church family where uh, this year we are not putting our main preaching text on the screen behind me because we are challenging you uh, to look at it in the Bible in front of you. We are challenging uh, our church family to higher personal engagements uh, in the scriptures in the year ahead and a simple way we're doing that is by encouraging you to bring your Bibles and to look at the scriptures uh, as we're walking through them and as we're teaching. And this morning, uh, we're starting a new message series called Restore and Rebuild, where Lord willing, we'll be walking through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah uh, together as a church family over the next few months. Um, Wednesday for me is typically my normal sermon prep day. This past Wednesday was no exception to that. And so uh, that's a process I started at home early morning this past Wednesday. And when I do this, I'm, I'm kind of locked in. So my phone's not on, TV's not on. There's really no uh, screen access for me. I'm just studying and I'm reading and I'm preparing uh, for what the Lord wants me to share Sunday morning. And so I had, I had my phone off all morning Wednesday, but then needed to go into the office a little bit Wednesday uh, mid-afternoon. So I turned on my phone for a few moments. And as I was preparing to sit down at my desk, I get the Associated Press news notification on my phone uh, that the Capitol building had been breached, that the building was being evacuated. And, and so it, it just created within me what, what you've certainly experienced probably in the last 12 months. It's just sort of once again, that sinking feeling of helplessness and just overwhelmed by another very broken situation in our nation that just kind of leaves you shaking your head and saying, man, what a mess. What a mess that this is here. And so I spent a few moments just pulling up a couple of different news resources and uh, just trying to catch up to speed what was going on, watching some video. Uh, and at the same time, I'm watching all of this on the screen of my phone. I flip up my laptop and uh, to see my message notes, not to get too far ahead of myself this morning, but the first thing that jumps ahead, at, at, at jumps out at me from my message notes is what's going to be the first point of our message this morning, which is that God is sovereign over all governing authorities. And so on the screen in front of me, there's a message that says, God is in control of the government. And in the screen in my hand, there's a message that says, our government is out of control. And so I want to ask us a question this morning. How do we reconcile an in-control God with an out-of-control world? How do we reconcile an in-control God with an out-of-control world? It is really easy at times to look at the situation, to look at the circumstances in our world and feel like God has lost control and feel like God isn't making good on his promises. It can be very, very difficult to believe that God is in control and that his promises are being fulfilled when the world is in chaos and looks like it's falling apart. When we get to the Old Testament book of Ezra and Nehemiah and we come upon the people of God in chapters 1 and 2, their circumstances seem to dictate that God had lost control. The Lord had promised the nation of Israel that he would make them a great nation, that through them all of the nations of the world would be blessed, that he would be their God, that they would be his people. And he had made these promises to them. He had made the promise to them that through them, his plan of salvation for the whole world would be fulfilled through them. But their immediate circumstances, when we get to Ezra chapter 1, seem to dictate otherwise. Uh, after the reign of David's son Solomon, 
uh, uh, time before, the nation of Israel had split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and then the southern kingdom of Judah. And when we come to Ezra 1, uh, not only are they not a global superpower, they are a persecuted minority that have been conquered by a foreign enemy and are in exile in a foreign land. So the immediate circumstances seem to dictate that God had lost control. The immediate circumstances seem to dictate that the Lord was not making good on his promise. And and for us, we go through very similar moments like this in life. We, We look at our circumstances, we look at our lives, and it's easy to feel like things are out of control. We look at what's going on in our homes We look at the state of our marriage. We look at the state of our children. We look at the state of our finances. We look at the state of our job and our nation. We look at the state of the economy. We look at the state of the political division. And, you know, this past week, like many of you, I wasn't just sitting there watching the screen and asking, how did this happen? We know how this happened. Sin is the reason why this happened. Not just asking, how did this happen? But how in the world did we get to this place? And how in the world are we going to get out? Lord, what are you going to do with all of this mess? But the consistent message and the consistent testimony of the people of God throughout the centuries is when the world looks like it's breaking down church, that's the moment when God breaks through. And this is the picture that we're going to get to see, and this is the picture that we're going to get to study. So a little bit of a longer introduction this morning just because I want to make sure we set the context for uh, where, uh, what's happening in the nation of Israel and what's happening with the people of God uh, when we get to the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. So just to help us a little bit with the context, centuries before, the Lord had delivered his people from the bondage of slavery in Egypt. Uh, he led them out by the hand of Moses. He leads them to the land that he had promised to their fathers, to their ancestors. And as the nation is formed, he warns them against idolatry. He warns them against falling into the practices of the nations. But sure enough, it doesn't take very long. Uh, the, Lord, uh, the people of God turn their backs against the Lord. Uh, it doesn't take long. They demand, we want a king like the rest of the nations. It was God's desire that he would be their king. But ultimately, the people reject God as their king. And so he gives them human kings. And we see time and time again, it's like Groundhog Day in the Old Testament. You see this very common refrain in the books of First and Second Kings that many of the kings did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And in many ways, it was the leadership of their kings that led them into bondage and captivity away from the Lord. So the Lord sends them kings, but most of the kings are wicked. The Lord sends them priests, but they're corrupt, even within the religious system. The Lord sends them prophets to call them to repentance, to call them back to relationship. The Lord is so patient with his people, and he gives them opportunity after opportunity to turn and come to him and repent. But they persecute the prophets, they kill them, and ultimately their words fall on deaf ears. In Jeremiah chapter 25, there's a a long passage there that you could go read. We don't have time to look at it this morning. But Jeremiah 25, uh, the Lord prophesies through the prophet Jeremiah that the nation of Israel, because of their idolatry, because of their rebellion against him, they were going to fall into captivity for 70 years. He told them through Jeremiah that they were going to be conquered by the Babylonians. They were going to go into exile for 70 years, but that ultimately the Babylonians themselves would be conquered and God's people once again would be given the opportunity to return to their home and rebuild their place of worship. So we see because of their rebellion against the Lord, ultimately in 605 BC, uh, the Lord makes good on his promise. In the year 605, uh, the nation of Israel, God's people, they are conquered uh, by the Babylonians and the first wave of Jewish people are sent into exile. This happens again, 597, there's a second wave that goes into exile, and by 586 BC, God's people had been completely exiled in Babylon away from their home. But part of that prophecy was that the Lord was also going to send those who would conquer Babylon, that they would be judged because of their wickedness. The Lord is uh, an equal opportunity judge. Whether it's his people or they're not his people, where there is wickedness, the Lord brings his judgment and his punishment. So Babylon ultimately is conquered by the Persians. And then uh, between 538, 535 BC, uh, the first waves of God's people return to their home, fulfilling the 70 years that had been prophesied by Jeremiah. The uh, book of Ezra and Nehemiah, these were originally written together as one volume. Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, Ezra is widely accepted as the author of both, uh, written roughly sometime around 430 BC as a scribe, uh, Ezra had access to historical archives and documents that most normal people would not have had. And so the books detail uh, the return of the Jewish people from Babylonian exile back to their homeland under the leadership of Zerubbabel, uh, Ezra, and Nehemiah. So the books cover uh, nine decades. Nine decades are spanned in these two 
short books here. Uh, the first uh, event, the first wave, three return waves in the same way there were three exile waves. The first is in 538 led by Zerubbabel, the second in 458 by Ezra, the third in 445 from Nehemiah. And in many ways, the return from exile looked like the first exodus in the book of Exodus, where God led his people out of the bondage of slavery in Egypt. They're freed from exile in a foreign land under a foreign king. They reestablish their identity as a people. Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, they take on more of a Moses-type role. They face opposition from their enemies. Ultimately, they struggle with the temptations and the idolatry of the nations. And each uh, book, the, the books are broken down into three distinct phases that follow the same repetitive cycle. It starts with a decree from a governing authority that leads to a major project under undertaken by God's people uh, that ultimately leaves in a very unsettling and kind of awkward conclusion that leaves you wondering what in the world just happened and longing ultimately for more. And church, here's why we study these books today. Here's why they're important for us. There's two major reasons I want to focus on this morning. The first thing we see in Ezra and Nehemiah is that God is in control. Say that with me this morning. God is in control. What we see in Ezra and Nehemiah, what we will see this morning, is that God is absolutely sovereign over all powers and all peoples in this world. There's absolutely nothing that happens outside of his control. And ultimately, we are encouraged once again to see that the word of God is fully sufficient to restore and to rebuild his people. His, his word is sufficient not just to be the foundation upon which they build their lives, but ultimately to sustain them. And so that's a great encouragement for us today. But in church, we find in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah for us an important warning that I believe is incredibly relevant to our times. It is possible for the people of God to have the support of the power of government, to have policies that protect religious freedom, and to have a secure place of worship. It's possible to have all of these things, and the revival that we desire still not come. Because it's not the power of government that saves us. It's not policies of religious freedom that save us. It's not having a secure place of worship that saves us. Ultimately, we can only be saved by the supernatural intervention and presence of the living God. We can have power, we can have policies, we can have place, but without the presence of God, we're nothing. Because all of these things are powerless to do what we need most which is to have our hearts transformed and renewed by the power of the Holy Spirit. So this is what we see as we open up these books today. It was A.W. Tozer who said, when it looks like things are out of control, behind the scenes there is a God who has not surrendered his authority. When our world breaks down, God breaks through. And church, we're going to get more into this this morning, but I just want to share a little bit of your, my heart with you first thing right off the bat this morning. I believe in the midst of all of the mess, in the midst of all of the chaos, in the midst of all the brokenness of our world, church, I believe with all of my heart we are on the brink of the next great awakening in our nation. I believe that this is the moment that God desires to supernaturally break through and intervene if his people will turn from their sin, if we will turn from our superficial idols. The message of the gospel of Jesus Christ in our nation is being hijacked right now by a message of progressive liberalism and also by a message of American nationalism. And both of these idols are going to lead ultimately to the same place of destruction unless we recover the pure, unadulterated message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, free of our personal agendas. And unless the church once again regains its prophetic edge in speaking to the culture, calling good, good, and evil, evil, no matter how hard we fight, no matter how loud we yell, no matter what work we do, we will not see revival come unless the supernatural presence of the living God breaks through. And that's what I believe the Lord has set us up to do in this season. So what we're going to see this morning in Ezra and Nehemiah is that God's promises to his people will always come to pass. God's promises to his people will always come to pass, and nothing can prevent his word from coming to pass. It's always going to be fulfilled. The Lord is never not going to fulfill a promise that he's made, and nothing is going to keep his word from coming to pass. So let's read here for just a moment uh, Ezra chapter 1. Verses 1 through 4. 
It says here, in the year, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel, he who is the God in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So we see here first this morning that God is sovereign over all governing authority. God is sovereign over all governing authority. Ezra writes here that this was to fulfill the words of the prophets Jeremiah. And he had spoken this, that they would be conquered by a foreign enemy, that they would go into 70 years of exile, that that enemy would then be conquered and they would be given permission to return to the land. But it's also the fulfillment of the words of the prophet Isaiah from 200 years before. 200 years before this decree is issued, this is what the Lord spoke through the prophet Isaiah to his people. It says, the Lord, in Isaiah 44, 28, the Lord says of Cyrus, he calls him by name. This is 200 years before the decree is given. The Lord says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. He is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. So 200 years before, Isaiah did not just prophesy what was going to happen. Isaiah prophesied specifically who was going to make it happen by name. And we, we see just through uh, documents that we have from church history, 1946, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, and uh, they contain what's known to us as the Great Isaiah Scroll, and these date a couple hundred years even before the time of Jesus, and we see that this, this document has been accurately preserved through the centuries, that the Bible you hold today is an accurate reflection of these original scrolls, and so we see this is not like a late fabrication of those who were translating the scriptures. More than that, 1879, there was a clay cylinder that was discovered known as the Cyrus Cylinder, and uh, what, it do, what it is, it's a cuneiform document that was uh, discovered by a, a British archaeologist in the foundations of the ancient temple of Babylon, and it contains this decree that Cyrus had given. It wasn't just for the Jewish people. Uh, Cyrus was uh, a, a, a polytheistic Persian king. He believed in a, a multiplicity of gods, of many gods, and he would have wanted the, the, gods, the support of the gods on any side. He didn't care who they were coming from. He just wanted the support of all the gods. It was the uh, early church historian Josephus. He actually records that Cyrus was so impressed with uh, this prophecy that it listed him by name that he was eager to fulfill the word of God. And we see this in the first few verses. He recognizes that this authority has come from the Lord, and so he is eager to see this prophecy fulfilled. Listen, we have documents from antiquity to show this is historically verifiable fact, church. And you know why? Because God always keeps his promises. God always keeps his promises. And in order to demonstrate his absolute sovereignty over all things, God doesn't deliver his people through a prophet. God doesn't deliver his people through a priest. God does not deliver his people through a patriarch. To demonstrate his absolute sovereignty over all power, God delivers his people by the hands of a pagan king. He doesn't need anybody. As a matter of fact, it was the kings who in many ways had led the people to get into this mess in the first place. The kings that the people demanded, we want these kings instead of the Lord. And so through Cyrus, we see that God can use absolutely anyone to fulfill his purposes. He needs no man. It doesn't matter who's sitting in a White House. It doesn't matter who's sitting on a throne. It doesn't matter who sits on the Supreme Court or in Congress. God needs no man to fulfill his plan and his purposes. We see this reflected all throughout Scripture. In the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Because Christ is the one who has conquered sin and death and hell and the grave, all authority belongs to him. And in that authority, here's what he does. We're going to look at a few passages of scripture quickly. I just encourage you to jot these down and then uh, talk about them more in group a little bit uh, later. Romans 13.1 shows us that let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Why? For there is no authority except from God. And those who exist have been instituted by God. Daniel chapter 2, we see again that the Lord changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. 
He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Proverbs 21, verse 1, shows us that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will, and that's what he's doing in verses 1 through 4. It says the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. He stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. Cyrus recognizes that's, that authority is coming from the Lord, and he gives the people the blessing to return to their land. You know, listen, church, like we rightly worry that when it comes to our context today, we rightly worry that a political candidate's character or policies could do irreparable harm to the body of Christ. We rightly worry about these things because we are concerned with righteousness, because we're concerned with justice, because we are concerned as followers of Jesus with holiness. But where we need to find some assurance this morning is knowing that if the Lord can work through a pagan king in order to fulfill his promises, he can work through anybody. It doesn't matter who's sitting in the positions of authority. You know, a really popular show that's gaining a lot of traction in the culture right now, getting lots of uh, national attention, is The Queen's Gambit on Netflix. Have any of you been watching this by show of hands this morning? Okay, so several across the room. And just for those of you who haven't seen this, it's basically a show about uh, a girl who's orphaned at a young age, but then she uh, just becomes a chess prodigy uh, by way, in many ways, uh, of, a, of a drug dependency. And so it's a very multi-layered, kind of deep, uh, multifaceted show, lots of heavy layers. Uh, not one for family movie night. Like, I'll just go ahead and give you that, that disclaimer um, right now. But ultimately, she becomes a chess prodigy, just a, a global sensation. And, and what's amazing uh, about those who are true grandmasters of chess, and, and what I think is, is visually reflected really well in this show, is uh, the ability of these grandmasters to, uh, to look at the board and to anticipate a move that their opponent might make, and in light of those moves, be able to project ahead, be thinking ahead like a dozen moves later down the board. Okay, if they move this gambit, if they move this knight, if they move the queen here, and they're able to think through uh, two dozen, three dozen additional moves that may come as the result of this one single move. And it's, it's amazing, just amazing how they're able to anticipate, but ultimately it still depends on the action of the opponent. You can have a number of scenarios in mind for what move you might make next, but ultimately those scenarios are going to be dependent on the moves of that opponent. I think you and I need to understand this morning, we are not playing chess with the Lord. Like the Lord doesn't react to us. It, it's not like we make a move, like the Lord's watching us. Hey, I wonder what they're going to do next. We make a move, and then he's got a series of moves planned out. Like the Lord is in total control of the board, and it's already in checkmate. Like there's no concern, there's no confusion whatsoever about the outcome. He is absolutely sovereign over every single move. The Lord from eternity past, he knows the moves we're going to make. The good things that we do, the evil things we do, all of it is under his sovereign control and none of it stops his plan and his promises and his purposes from coming to pass. And that's what we see reflected in this specific passage. R.C. Sproul has said that to say God's sovereignty is limited by man's freedom is to make man sovereign. God is not reactive. Like he's not waiting for us to make our move so he can plan his next. He has known it all from eternity past. The good that we do, the evil that we do, it all falls in line with his sovereign plan. All authority has been given to Jesus. Jesus in that authority establishes government. He removes kings. He sets up kings. He controls their heart like a stream. His plan and his purposes will always come to pass because he is sovereign over all governing authority. Let's look back at Ezra 1 once again and read together verses 5 and 6. It says, Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. So we see that God is sovereign over all governing authority, and we also see that the Lord will save his people from bondage and captivity. He is sovereign over all governing authority. He will save his people from bondage and captivity. In the same way that he stirred up the heart of Cyrus to issue this decree, he stirred up the hearts of his people to go back to their home. And listen, this was necessary because here's what was happening among the people of God that we'll get into in later weeks. Many of them had not just fallen into captivity and slavery. Many of them had become comfortable in captivity and slavery. Many of them actually kind of liked their captivity and slavery, and they, they started to intermarry with the nations, and they started to fall into idolatry. They had lost what made them distinct as the people of God, and they were perfectly comfortable under the leadership of this foreign Persian king. 
is that the Lord stirs up the heart of his people to return to Jerusalem. So again, at this point in uh, the the nation of Israel's history, it had been split into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom was uh, the nation of Israel. The southern kingdom was the nation of Judah. And it was the three tribes of Judah, Judah, Benjamin, and Levi. These are the ones that were taken into exile. And so uh, this is where teaching through books like Ezra and Nehemiah gets a little bit complicated because if you read ahead for the rest of chapter one and then pretty much all of chapter two, which is like 70 verses, uh, it's a long list of supplies and genealogy. Okay, so uh, just for the sake of time, and because I refuse to give you the pleasure of listening to me mispronounce dozens of names this morning, um, read ahead these passages on your own. I'm just going to briefly summarize what's happening in the rest of chapter 1 all through chapter 2. So 2 Kings 25 had detailed that the vessels and the supplies of the temple were stolen and taken away. And then Jeremiah 27 prophesied that these things would be carried back by the exiles. And so what happens in verses 7 through 11 is Cyrus opens up the vault of the temple treasury, and then chapter 2 contains the manifest of those who would go back as part of the first return wave. Uh, Most notably of that group is Zerubbabel. Uh, He was a royal descendant of King Jehoiakim, and he was going to be the one who led the first return wave back uh, to Jerusalem. And then also Jeshua, who was a Levite, who was going to serve as the priest when they restored the place of worship. Now, if you do a deep dive on your own into chapter chapter two, if you uh, go online, you do deeper research, you find some commentaries, uh, you're going to come across something. And it's, it's been a bit of a discrepancy as people study the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, is that when you look at chapter two and then almost an identical list in Nehemiah chapter seven, uh, there's some discrepancies in the numbers where the numbers don't quite add up. And so if that's something that really trips you up, uh, we don't have time to dive into that this morning, but we are going to cover that when we get to Nehemiah chapter seven. So if that conversation comes up in group, that conversation comes up as you study on your own, just know we are going to circle back around to that this morning, but that's just more than we have time to do. Identical list almost in Nehemiah 7. We're going to talk about how to reconcile uh, those discrepancies in the weeks ahead. But then uh, upon their return, they start the process of separating those who were qualified for the priesthood and those who were not. And so we see among the people of God, as they return to restore their place of worship, there was an immense concern about holiness, Part of why they landed in exile is because they had wicked kings and because they had corrupt priests. And so they wanted to make sure they had the right people for the job. They wanted to make sure they had the right supplies. And as they rebuilt the temple of God, that they were doing this the right way and walking in holiness as he commanded. And it's based on, it's clear based on who returned, what they return with, and what they do when they return, that their number one concern in returning to their home was restoring true worship. This was their desire. If they were going to once again come back into right relationship with God, they had to be restored to true worship. So verses 68 and 70 at the end of chapter 2, we see that they return to Jerusalem. They resettle their home. They divide into classes of ordinary citizens and temple servants. And then they give free will offerings for the building of the temple of the Lord. So just look at how all of this has materialized just in these two short chapters after 70 years of exile. At one point in time, things looked impossible. God had told them he was going to make a great nation out of them, and yet they are in exile under the leadership of a foreign king, away from their home. God had promised them that they would one day rebuild their home, but they don't have supplies, they don't have resources. And what we see in the rest of chapter 1 and chapter 2 is that Cyrus also issues a decree that people would give offerings to them, give supplies to them, that they would be returned the things from the temple treasury so that they would have what they need. So the picture we have here, church, is that the Lord does not just free them from their captivity, he supplies every need for the rest of the journey. And this is exactly what Jesus has done for us. We're lost and we're, we're in the bondage of our sin. Our salvation looks impossible because there's no good work that we can do to save ourselves. That there's no amount of righteousness that we can work up to bring about our salvation. We have sin that separates us from a holy God and this impossible chasm has been fixed. But God has not left us in the exile of our sin. He sent his son Jesus who comes to live the perfect life we could never live, who dies on a cross, the death that we deserve, who was risen from the grave, who conquered the grave so that we by faith and repentance could turn from our sins and trust in him and be raised to new life in him. And he doesn't just set us free from that bondage. He gives us the power of the Holy Spirit, which Paul says, church, is the same power that raised Christ from the grave. Do you believe this? Do you believe that what dwells within you today as a follower of Christ is the same power that raised Jesus from the grave? Does our world see this? God doesn't just save us from our captivity. He makes every provision for the journey home, and he stays with us. He doesn't leave us, and he doesn't forsake us. 
The word of the Lord is fulfilled. At one time, the situation looked impossible, but God intervened. And in the same way that he set his people free and made every provision for their salvation, we can truly be set free from our sin and walk a new life in him. So what do we do with this this morning? What what do we do with these truths? That God is sovereign over the events of our world. What do we do with the truth? That God has made a promise to set his people free from captivity. I want to give us uh, four challenges this morning in light of the fact that God is a promise-keeping God. So because God keeps his promises, we see this morning that we can trust in his divine sovereignty. We can trust in his divine sovereignty. Jesus said all authority. Everybody say all. Greek word for all means all, okay? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go back to where we were just a second ago, Romans 13. In that authority, he has established governing authority. Do you agree with this statement? In that authority, he's established governing authority. Daniel 2 says that the Lord sets up times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Proverbs 21 says the king's heart is like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. So who controls the hearts of kings? It's the Lord. Who sets up kings and removes kings? It's the Lord. Who establishes governing authority? And to whom does all authority belong? It's the Lord. Do you agree with these things? That's good because I'm about to say something that's going to make a lot of you really upset. On the authority of God's word, I want to say something that I think needs to be spoken into the mania and the hysteria of our world today. 2016-2020, we have, uh, from both extremes... Lots of questions and lots of controversy surrounding the legitimacy of elections. It happened in 2016. It happened in 2020. And so I want to say something this morning to recenter us as the body of Christ on the authority of God's word, on the authority of Matthew 28, on the authority of Romans 13, on the authority of Daniel 2, on the authority of Proverbs 21. I want to say something very carefully but very clearly to us today that we need to be reminded of. Governing authorities do not ultimately, everyone say ultimately, Very important word. I circled it in my notes because it's that important. Governing authorities do not ultimately ascend to their positions of authority because they are democratically elected by people, but because they have been divinely appointed by God. God always gets his person on the throne. You need to be extremely careful when it comes into an election season. That's who God needs That's who God wants. Church, God needs no man. If God can fulfill his promises through the presence of a pagan king, he can fulfill his promises through the presence of a pagan president. God needs no man to do his bidding. He is not reacting to us. He's not sitting in heaven this week going, what am I going to do now? What would I do without America? What would I do without the right president? What would I do without the Supreme Court? How would my plan and promises be fulfilled? Church, God needs no man. The question this morning is really simple. Is God sovereign or is he not? Is God in control or is he not? Now, that's the statement that's made all of us mad. Now, I think this is going to help us a little bit more because this is where it gets a little bit confusing. Do not take God appointed to mean God approved. Very careful. The question is not, biblically, is governing authority appointed by God? That's clear. Like, you can send me the long email. I'm going to send you four scripture references and say, hey, you need to do business with the Lord. Like, the, your, your argument, like, don't, don't shoot the mailman just because I'm delivering the bill this morning, right? Like, that, that is abundantly clear. If you accept the authority of God's word, your argument's not with me. Your argument is with the word of God. God establishes a governing authority. The question for us this morning is, are they being established for our blessing? Or are they being established for our judgment? And listen, if you spend the next four years arguing and debating over which side of the coin that is, you're going to miss the point. Because in the midst of all of it, we can trust that God is still sovereign, that God is in control, that regardless of who sits in the White House, in the Supreme Court, in the House of Congress, God's plan and his purposes will always be fulfilled always going to be fulfilled, and he needs no human king. I love this from Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. I won't read the whole thing this morning, but the psalmist just asked this question, oh, how the nations rage. The nations rage and the people plot in vain, and you skip down a few verses. What's it say the Lord's doing? He who sits in the heavens laughs. So cute that you guys think you're in control. While nations are raging People are plotting, conspirators are conspiring, 
what's he who sits in the heavens doing? He's laughing because he's in control. No matter what we think we're doing, even if we think we are actively working against the promises and the plans of the Lord, even his enemies' church are doing his bidding. We see this no more clearly than at the cross of Jesus Christ, where the enemy thought he was doing the ultimate evil, and God used it to accomplish the ultimate good, which was the salvation of all of mankind. We can trust that God is sovereign. And because of this, second, we can pray for those who are in positions of authority. Pray for those who are in positions of authority. You can turn with me in your Bibles here for just a second. Uh, second or excuse me, 1 Timothy chapter 2, and we're going to read together verses 1 through 4. And listen, we, we read these verses together a few times last year, particularly in the months of October and November, and I think we need to be reminded of them again this morning. This is our posture. This is our attitude. These are our emotions. This is our responsibility as followers of Christ, regardless of who sits in the position of authority. First Timothy 2, let's read verses 1 through 4. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Everyone say all people. And this is specifically for kings. And all, everybody say all. All who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. Everybody say peaceful and quiet. Godly and dignified in every way. Everybody say godly and dignified. This is good. This is good, and this is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who what? Who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Do you understand that your actions, your posture, what you share, how you talk, how you respond, this has evangelistic implications. Our world is watching. Ray Ortland said it so well in the month of December for the church, calm is our prophetic edge. This is what sets us apart, church. When the world is in chaos, when it's in turmoil, when it's turning upside down, the people of God are steady. We haven't moved and we will not be shaken. Is it okay to mourn and to uh, lament and to grieve and to be broken over the state of our nation? Absolutely, yes. I believe according to what we see in God's word, we should be. But are we people of fear? Are we people of hysteria? Are we people of mania and paranoia? Absolutely not. The nations rage, the people plot in vain. He who sits in the heavens laughs. So we can trust. Listen, what if we did something crazy, church, for the next four years? What if we did something crazy, we tried something different, and obeyed what the word of God said to do? How about instead of screaming like a bunch of lunatics into the echo chamber of the internet, what if we got on our knees and we plead and we pled to the sovereign creator of all people and we pled to the one who controls the hearts of kings that he might change them, that he might turn them? I want to ask you this morning, when's the last time you prayed for the heart of Donald Trump? When's the last time you prayed for the heart of Joe Biden? When's the last time you prayed for the hearts of those sitting on the Supreme Court? When's the last time you prayed for the heart of Nancy Pelosi, for the heart of Mitch McConnell? If we cannot answer yes to those questions, then every person in this room is complicit. We're all part of the problem because we've forsaken our responsibility as the people of God. If anything is going to change over the next four years, the church of Jesus Christ is going to have to trade the echo chamber for the prayer closet. It's time that we get on our knees and we cry out to the Lord that we take God at his word and we trust that he can change the hearts of kings. Beyond this, because God keeps his promises, we can practice super sacrificial generosity. Look at the response of God's people. Like they recognize the movement of God. It says that the Lord stirred their hearts to return home. They recognize the movement of God and they don't just recognize it as the Lord supplies their needs along the way. They begin to give sacrificially even of the little that they have because they see the movement of God taking place in church. I just wanna ask you again this morning, like do you see what's happening in our world? Like what else does the Lord have to do to get our attention? What else does the Lord have to shake? Like what, I mean, honestly, what other step is he going to have to take in our nation specifically to get the attention of his people? What rug does he have left to pull out from under our feet other than our utter destruction? It is time for us to turn, to repent, to return to the Lord, to sense the stirring, to sense the movement of the Holy Spirit. But here's the problem this morning, as many of us have become comfortable in this. Many of us have become comfortable with the marriage of our faith to progressive liberalism. Many of us have become comfortable this morning with the marriage of our faith to American nationalism. And both of these adulterous messages are leading to the same place of our utter destruction unless we turn and repent. 
Jesus does not share his glory with any other. And he invites us this morning to once again to return to him, to come back to him, to sense the stirring and sense the leading. And so I just ask you in the year ahead, will you respond to the stirring? Will you respond to the leading? How will you give? How will you sacrifice so the plans and purposes of the Lord will be accomplished? God has always built his kingdom through the open-handed generosity and free will offerings of his people. How will we rise up? How will we sacrifice? And finally, because God is a God who keeps his promise, we see that we have to fight against spiritual complacency. We have to fight against spiritual complacency. Complacency spiritually is what led them into exile, and complacency spiritually is what kept many of them there. See, many of them had been born in exile, and they never even understood what it meant to be free. That they had no context, they had no framework for what freedom even looked like as the people of God. But some, they had experienced freedom and they had, they had known what it was like to have their place of worship. But they'd become complacent in their captivity and their bondage. And man, this is what happens to so many of us as followers of Jesus. Like we forget that this world is not our home and we invest so much time and energy and resources and mental frustration in trying to make this world our home. And I just want to ask you in the year of our Lord 2021, how's that going for you? How's that going for us as a nation, just trying to fix everything immediately in front of us in our own strength, in our own power, with our own arguments, with our own logic, with our own reason? How is this working out? Where have you grown complacent as a follower of Jesus? This is what happens to us, church. We, as, uh, in a sense, are reverse exiles. That this world is not our home. That this is a temporary place. Ultimately, we read the passage earlier, our home is fixed in eternity to come. This world's not our home. But we become complacent. We become complacent with sin. We become complacent with lust. We become complacent with sexual sin. We become complacent with jealousy and with gossip and with anger. We become complacency with spiritual apathy of not being in the word of God. We become complacent about being people who don't pray, about being people who don't worship, about being people who don't give, about people who don't prioritize the gathering. We become complacent and we become comfortable. And so I just ask you this morning, do you sense the stirring of the Lord? Do you sense the stirring of the Lord? Because there's a couple of different groups in this room this morning. There's those of us who have experienced freedom in Christ and we know what it's like. But for one reason or another, we have drifted into exile. And we've become comfortable and we've become complacent in that place. But for many of you today, you've never experienced freedom. You were born in exile. You don't know what it means to be free. You've become at home and at war, in, in this world with your sin. And so church, this is what we want to do this morning. I want to challenge us with some things in the weeks ahead. The Lord this past week stirred my heart. The Lord this past week stirred the heart of our staff, stirred the heart of our elder team. So I called just sort of an impromptu meeting uh, with them this past Thursday morning. And uh, we met for about an hour and a half. And we prayed and we shared scripture. We shared things that the Lord was laying on our hearts. We prayed for you. We prayed for our nation. We confessed sin. We repented of sin. And church, I just, I'll share with you this morning very transparently what I share with our staff. is like there's ways I just know and I see that I've grown complacent. I've settled for a lot less than what the Lord wants to do in my life and, and in the life of our church. And there's many ways I've prevented that and I've hindered that just because of, of, of my own fear or because of my own uncertainty and not knowing how to lead forward. Just way too many things I've tried to do in my own strength apart from the presence of God. And these books of the Bible show us we can't do it. We can't manufacture a movement of the Holy Spirit in our day, but you know what we can do, church? We can set our sails. We can trust the wind of the Spirit to blow. And so for the rest of the month of January, that's what we're going to do. But we're going to take the next three weeks, and I want to challenge you this morning. I want to call our church today to 21 days of prayer and fasting to close out the month of January. 21 days, and it's my prayer that we, with great intensity and fervency, would shake our complacency as we return and seek the Lord. And so this is the challenge for the next 21 days is fast one meal a day, fast a cup of coffee a day, fast whatever it is uh, a day that you have a dependency on. And what we do in fasting, just to put it in a sentence, physical desires, we want those to translate to spiritual impulses. So as our bodies des des desire food, they desire caffeine, whatever it is, you desire social media, instead of running to that, what we're going to do in those moments is we're going to cry out to the Lord and ask him to pour out his Holy Spirit on our nation. We're going to return to the Lord, and we're going to ask him to move. We had Saturday night prayer and worship in this room last night. Had probably about 60, 70 people who came. We're going to do that every Saturday night for the rest of the month. 
Let's be people who, with great intensity and fervency, seek together the Lord. But this morning, we want to start something that's a new rhythm for us as well. And what's going to happen here in just a moment is, is I'm going to give two separate invitations and two calls today. The first is going to be for those who have just become comfortable with complacency. You become at home in this world. You become comfortable in your sin. You become comfortable with, with not having a heart that just burns with affection for the Lord. And that call for us is simply this morning to return to him. But for some of you this morning, you were born in exile. You've never known freedom. And this morning, the Lord is stirring hearts and he's stirring minds and he's moving within you today. And we're gonna give you the opportunity like these people did back uh, centuries before Jesus to have their hearts stirred up and to go back home. Church, it's time for us to come away from where we've been and come back home where we belong. It's time for us to stop bending our knees to the superficial idols of this word and reserve our worship ultimately and only for our King Jesus Christ. And so I just want you to bow your heads with me here for just a moment this morning. We're just going to have here a, a time of prayer and a time of response. We're going to take communion together here in just a moment. But this is what's going to happen. In just a few moments, I, I'm going to pray. And if you're in this room this morning and you're saying, I have grown cold. I have grown complacent. I have become too at home in this world. If that's you this morning, we're going to give you the opportunity to stand up in this room right here in our midst, because number one, when Jesus called people, he called them publicly. And this will be the safest place on the planet that you ever stand for Jesus. If you won't stand for him in this room, you won't stand for him outside of this room. And so we want to give you the opportunity to, to stand in this room. And listen, not because we want to embarrass you, not because we want to shame you, because we want to affirm you. We want to celebrate you. This is nothing to be embarrassed of. And you want to stand today and say, I want to return home. I've grown complacent as an exile in a foreign land, and I want to return home. And the second group this morning is to say, I want to know true freedom. I was born in sin, and I've never known freedom from my sin. All my life, I've been complacent in my sin. I've been comfortable with my sin. I've been comfortable not having a relationship with the living God of the universe. And this morning, I want to turn from my sin. I want to stop bowing my knees to the superficial things of this world. And I want to call on Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of my life. And so here, I'm just going to pray here for just a moment. And just so there's no confusion about what's happening, just a moment, we are going to give you the opportunity to stand up, We've got a whole army of prayer warriors in the back of this room this morning. They're ready to receive you. And what they want to do for just a few moments is they will want the privilege of praying for you and for encouraging you. Do not leave with this alone today. We have a family here that loves you and cares for you and wants to help you get back home. So Father, this morning we, we pray boldly in faith. We ask in faith now, Lord, that salvation would be known in this place. Lord, we ask and we beg you this morning for the tearing open of the heavens that your Holy Spirit would be poured out in this room and in our community and in this nation. Lord, that we would return to you. You can save us. You can save us. You are our only solid rock and everything else is sinking sand. So Lord, this morning we come to you and we turn to you. We ask now, Lord, will you receive the full reward of your suffering as we celebrate new life in you? So, so without a lot of hoopla, without any further prompting this morning, if you this morning, you sit in this room, you say, I have grown complacent and I want to return home. I was born into sin and slavery. I want to know freedom. If that's you this morning, I want you to stand up right now. Just wherever you are all across this room, praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Any others this morning? Praise God. Thank you, Lord. Praise God. And so all of you staying this morning, just, just, just you and me right now, just let's make eye contact here for a second. In just a moment, we want to ask you just to go meet with our prayer team for just a moment. We want you to be able to receive prayer and to receive encouragement from them. And so as you're standing this morning publicly to, to make this known, that you want to return home to be shaken from complacency. Right now, what we're going to do as a church family is we're going to celebrate you. We're going to affirm you and we're going to praise God for the work that he's doing in your heart today and commit to praying for you as a church family. And then as we finish celebrating, we're just going to ask you to move to the back of the room and receive prayer from our church, from our prayer team. Is that okay? All of you standing this morning, is that all right? Praise God. 
Hey, church family, let's celebrate the movement of the Holy Spirit in this place today and the work of the God. Thank you. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. We encourage you guys, if you'll go meet with the prayer team, you, can step, you guys can step to the back of the room, meet with our prayer team here for just a moment. And, and the rest of us, this is what we're going to do is uh, we're going to enter into a time of communion this morning, but it's going to be a little bit open-ended. I want to ask this morning, as we saw in Ezra chapters 1 and 2, is the Lord stirred your heart? Is the Lord stirring your heart? And will you respond to that stirring as he leads us on? And so uh, what we're going to do here in just a moment is we're going to invite you to receive the Lord's Supper. But um, as you come and get the elements, we're just going to ask you to return to your seats with those and you partake as you feel led. And for the next uh, five, ten minutes, there's just going to be freedom in this room. If you want to come kneel up front here and pray, if you want to kneel in your seats and pray, we're just going to let you remain seated here in just a moment as we respond uh, in worship. An hour of the Lord leads you. I am burdened for those who are far from Christ. I am burdened for the brokenness of our nation, and it's time for the people of God to return to the Lord and once again cry out to him. And that's what we're going to let happen in this place today. So in just a moment, we're going to stand together, we're going to sing, we're going to come forward to receive elements for the Lord's Supper, uh, and then you continue in worship as you feel led. So if you're here today as a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're not a member of this church, but if you profess faith in Christ, we want to invite you to receive the Lord's Supper. Uh, the way you're going to do that is come up the center aisles. As you come through, the plates have, uh, it's two cups stacked on top of each other. The bottom cup has bread, the top has juice. You receive those, return to your seats, and then you simply partake as you feel led. You continue in prayer, you continue in worship, you continue in confession and reflection and repentance. And let's pray for the Lord to continue to do this morning a work in our midst. Let's pray for those who are going to come hear the gospel in the second service this morning, that there would be response, continued response uh, in this room. So church, you remain seated. I'm going to say a brief prayer, and then you respond today as you feel led. Father, we thank you and we praise you for the work that you've done in this place today. We thank you and we praise you for shaking our hearts out of complacency, for stirring us this morning for fixing our eyes once again on your power and your control and your sovereignty and the promise that you will save your people. And we thank you for the message of the cross that has accomplished our salvation, that through the life, death, and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ, we can know hope and we can know freedom and awakening in you. Lord, bring revival and awakening to our land. Bring revival and awakening to our nation, to our church. Lord, bring it to me. Be glorified now as we sing and as we respond. We ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And everyone said, amen, amen.